Good morning. I'm Pastor Mike. It's wonderful to be back with you all. We were on vacation last week, drove to Oklahoma and back. Uh, two days on the road, a little over a day or so there, and two days back. But it was good. Uh, good to see family and friends and attend a wedding for one of our family members. Uh, but today we are back in God's Word, looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, as we uh, listen carefully to God's Word, that we might live confidently in our world. This is one of those passages that just, once you, you read it, once you are familiar with it, you begin to see it everywhere. It's uh, used by many of my favorite counseling resources. It's a part of the peacemaking ministry that uh, I've been a part of. It's, it's just one of those really super practical verses, as if James already wasn't super practical. This is among the most practical of all of James's practicality, this topic and this passage before us today. At the same time, pay attention as we read God's Word for what he's actually saying. The, the language that he uses to describe conflict, to describe challenges in our relationships with each other and with God. It's challenged me this week as I've looked at these words and meditated on them yet again. And I'm sure it will challenge you, but in the end, it also will give us hope. If we listen carefully, we truly find a path to confident living. Would you read with me God's Word, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. This is God's Word. Father, we do thank You for Your Word that it is trustworthy and true, that it speaks to our hearts, it speaks to our lives, it speaks 
to everything. It is sufficient. Oh Lord, make it sufficient to us today. Grow us in our ability to have healthy relationships, to deal with conflict, whether it be in our marriages or friendships, in our church family or in our neighborhoods and workplaces. Lord, wherever it may be, transform us by your word and your spirit working together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a, a, a wonderful passage. We could spend way more than one week on it. We could spend weeks on it. Volumes have been written on this passage. And yet at the same time, it is in many ways familiar. And it's possible, as one of my, uh, my mentors used to say, to, to kind of ice slick this passage, where you hit a patch of ice and you just keep going. You're like, oh yeah, I know this. I've heard this. And, and that kind of happened to me as I dug into this passage this week in the context of, of wars and rumors of war going on in our society and all around the world, and in particular with the things that we have seen in the conflict, the war between Ukraine and Russia, uh, what's going on there, to see regularly, just regular, what looks to be very similar suburban housing or urban apartments just decimated by war. And to see people that dress like you and I, that look like they could be in the United States, in fact, some of them were, in that land of Ukraine, just dead. To see just those scenes. And then to read this passage, and to dig into it and realize, okay, James is talking about not literal murder, but what lies underneath murder. To, to, to see him talking about not merely just fights and quarrels and verbal altercations, which is what he's talking about, but to then make this, this language and to use such strong, strong language. And I think it stuck out to me this time because we have spent so much time with James over the last several months. To just hear him so graciously, you know, beloved, brothers and sisters, to urge and encourage and speak of the joy and the midst of sufferings, all those kind of things. Then to just have him pop right into this stuff after having spoken at the end of chapter 3 about the peace that's available to us, the wisdom from heaven, to then hear this language, this graphic language of fights and quarrels and conflicts and waging of war, to be called adulteresses, have the language of murder. Don't miss that. And I, and I have. I mean, how often do you really think that those harsh words that you speak, are, you know, the, the road uh, anger that we have, you know, that's, it's akin to murder. That's what James is saying. That's the language. That it's that serious. That's why he goes so strong to the language of adultery and to murder. He, he wants to get our attention. He's shocking us. Because we need it. Because in a world of physical violence and war, sometimes we're just, oh, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. And this is strong language. Because what James is saying 
is that significant collateral damage, you know, they speak of that in war, right? Collateral damage, unintended consequences of bombings or war that innocent people get killed. That, that's the, the analogy here, that there's significant collateral damage among us, even in the church family, even among the community of faith, the believers in Jesus, we have those skirmishes, those wounds, even what he calls the equivalent of death, due to the ongoing war within us, individually. In other words, when we lash out harsh words, anger, judgment, gossip, all of those kind of things, they are evidence of this war within us, individually and even collectively. And so the, as we unpack this passage today, that's what I want us to talk about. First of all, that really what's going on is what I want to call the desire war. It's a desire war. How do you know you're in a desire war? The, the first thing you see is that your allies become your enemies. Your allies become your enemies. Look again at verse 1. i got to find my glasses again. See what he says in verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, your desires that wage war in your members? The conflicts here is what Paul elsewhere speaks of as, you know, fighting without as opposed to within. It is fighting that can happen in the church family. 2 Timothy 2.23 and Titus 3.9 speak of that. It is uh, in the verb form of the word, which appears in verse 2 as fighting. It's, it's speaking about that physical combat that, that Moses tries to intercede in uh, that Jane, Stephen talks about in Acts chapter 7, where Moses tries to separate two fighting, brawling Hebrews. And they say, what, are you going to kill us too? You know, that's the language here that he's talking about. The, the way that we deal with the war waging in our members, the war inside of us with our desires, the desire war is that we turn, up, we turn our allies, our friends, even our spouses into enemies. It happens in the church. It happens in the workplace. It happens among friends. Have you not had that experience where you're so angry with someone, all of a sudden you just, you cannot stand them. You know, if you've ever walked through a, divorce proceedings with someone or alongside of them or been through it yourself, you know just the hatred and anger from a couple that was even months ago, maybe years ago, deeply and profoundly in love and enjoying one another. What happens is this desire war at work within us. James even characterizes it in verse 2 as murder. Murder, verse 2, you lust, and that's, that's just a strong desire. It's not necessarily sexual in nature. We think that today as we hear that word lust, right? It's, it's the strong desire. You desire and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You know, and he's most likely, some people would say he's speaking literally of murder, that there were people killing each other. It doesn't seem to be the case as you look through. James spoke about uh, murder back in chapter 2 when he was speaking of, you know, if you, if you kid adul- commit adultery, you've broken the law. If you've murdered, you've broken the law. He speaks, he'll speak about it again in chapter 5, which is probably the most relevant part. He says in 5.6, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He did not resist you. That, that put to death is murder. Same idea. And he's speaking of withholding the wages of workers. You know, subsistence, people working to eat. They need the paycheck, and the wealthy are withholding it out of their greed and effectively killing their employees, so to speak. That, that's as close to a literal murder as James speaks of, but in the context here, it seems to be his emphasis is that you, you are angry with each other. You are fighting. You are acting, as Jesus said, with murder in your hearts. This was where Jesus started with his exposition of the law. You remember in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he he spoke of the blessings of following Jesus, of discipleship, of life in the kingdom, with the Beatitudes, we call them, the blessings. Then he spoke of a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. And whoever does will be liable to judgment. But I tell you, that if you are angry with your brother, and he goes on to unpack that, right? And he says that murder, as he unpacks the law, that God's design in saying do not murder meant way more than just don't physically kill someone. And we walked through the law and we talked about this, you remember a few months ago. Jesus was essentially saying that anger is equivalent to murder. That if you are angry, you are effectively murdering someone. And that might just come out because you're a little constrained, you know. That might come out as gossip to someone else. That might come out as sarcasm. That might come out as name-calling. That might come out as excluding and avoiding. Nevertheless, if in your heart you are harboring anger and hatred toward another and not working to resolve it, it's equivalent to murder. That's the language James is using. It's the language that Jesus used. So much so that in that passage in Matthew 5, Jesus said, if you are at worship and you are about to give your offering and you remember that your brother has something against you, not that you remember you have something against someone else, but you remember, hey, I think my brother is upset with me. You drop everything and go reconcile. Don't come worship God until you work on reconciling that relationship. That's how significant it is. Hatred is. It's a cutting off of the relationship. That sort of anger. And that's what James has in view here as he speaks of this. And essentially what happens in this desire war as we let it get the best of us. And, and look, you know, thankfully, none of us live there all the time as we're followers of Jesus, right? We're talking about in those extreme moments, in those hardest moments, this is where we wind up as we are losing the desire war within us. We turn our allies into enemies and we turn our God into our servants. 
or worse, your God becomes your servant or worse. We see this in those uh, next couple of verses. Look at chapter or verse two at the end of verse two. He says, "You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask." And do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so you may spend it on your pleasure. You know, the desire war leads us to avoid asking God. You know, that's, that's most likely what he has in view here. He doesn't say God, but clearly, you know, who else are you going to ask for these things and who else is going to grant them? And it could be the other person that you're having this conflict with, and there's a an application for that, but it seems to me that the, the issue here is you're not asking God. And if you were to ask Him, if you were to ask Him in, in this desire war as you're losing it and you ask God, He's not going to say yes because you're just turning Him into your servant rather than the rightful place that He should have. Acting as if your desire was more important than God or his will, or acting as if he didn't care. You know, this is all made all the more worse, right? As, as if you're reading through James and you start at the beginning, just the beginning of chapter one, he was talking about prayer. Do you remember that? James chapter one. He was talking about prayer. Verse five, chapter one. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You know, he's speaking of wisdom. Let, ask God. And, and God is literally the, the giving one, the generous one. That's who you are asking, this one who cares about you. But verse 6, chapter 1 says, He must ask in faith without doubting, without the double-mindedness. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord. See, James is applying that here in this situation where you're losing the desire world. There's something you want so strongly that you're not bothering to ask God. And if you do ask him, you're not really considering his will. You're just saying, give me what I want. And God's not going to answer that. It is what Jesus talked about as uh, bad priorities. You cannot serve two masters. You can't serve your own desires and God. One of them is going to win, one's going to lose. And in the desire war, it's going to be God. And you're going to push him to the side. He's going to become irrelevant. You won't ask him. You'll forget that he is the one who is generous and wants to give you good gifts. And you'll just use him as a servant. Or worse, he'll be irrelevant. He just doesn't even enter in. And I think that, that part of why we don't ask in the midst of this desire war is because if we know Jesus, there is a part of us that's always kind of being like, ah, I'm not sure about this. You seem to want that a little too strongly. And you're like, no, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Shut up. This is good. It's something good. And uh, I don't know. And you know deep down that if you go to God and you begin praying and asking for it, you're going to have to answer those questions of like, do I want this too much? Am I really trusting God? Am I really okay with him being God and me not being God? 
Am I really willing to pray, as someone said, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, meaning my kingdom go. (laughs) You can't pray that, thy kingdom come, if you don't at the same time say, my kingdom go. That's part of, I think, the issue of why God becomes irrelevant, why we don't ask him. Don't hear me saying that wanting something is bad. James is not saying it's wrong to have desire. James is not saying a good Christian doesn't want things that they don't have. That is not at all what he's saying. This, the, the sense is, yeah, sometimes there's things that we want that are just wrong. But the, the sense, and there's, that's here, but the, more, the problem here is, is essentially this focus on ourselves way more than God or other people. Right? So that it works out. We're not loving God or others because we're not asking God, we're not bringing it before him, uh, and we're treating people who are our allies as enemies, as barriers to our objectives. And so the first step, if you, if you want to get out of that desire war, if you want to get back to the right place, the first step I would encourage you is just identify what it is you really want. What do you really desire in the moment? What is causing the conflict? Not just in general your desire, but what is the specific desire that is leading you to turn your allies into enemies What is the desire that is leading you away from prayer and trusting in God? And don't overthink it. I mean, spend some time reflecting, but don't overthink it. Just stop and think for a little bit. And here's a a pro tip for you. If you've been fighting, if you're in the middle of a conflict with someone, especially, say, your spouse... It's usually a good idea to take a little bit of a break. It's very often in these situations where, you know what, we need to just take a break for at least 20 minutes. Because in those moments, you know, there's that voice inside of you, and you're like saying things, you're just coming out, you know, you've lost control. And that's, you're not going to be able to figure out what you really want. In fact, Everything about that situation is keeping you from thinking about what you really want in any sort of objective way. Because when your, your emotions really rise in those situations, especially in a marriage relationship, but it could be in other relationships with siblings, with your parents, with your children, with your coworkers, with your neighbor, you know, there are situations where your emotions just start going and, and it's called flooding. Right? You have this emotional overwhelm going on. And it's, it's physiological, right? It's, it's our God-given design that's supposed to keep us safe, right? That we would flee dangers. It's supposed to give us the movement to solve problems that we would engage constructively, but what happens in relationships and with our sinful nature fighting against us with the desire war going on inside of us, it gets all blown out of proportion. And our, our body, our physical body works against us, gaining control 
and being the people that we really are and who God intends us to be. And so researchers have demonstrated that in clever ways, they figured this out. Thousands, thousands of people studied. Just 20 minutes, just 20 minutes of a break is usually enough for us to calm down if in those 20 minutes we don't sit there and stew and rehearse and prepare for. If we will spend 20 minutes, take a walk, read a magazine, you know, not something that's going to agitate or stir you up, right? Fold the laundry, go mow the grass, weed the garden, pet the dog. Go for a walk. Enjoy the fresh air. Something that takes your mind off of the immediate conflict because you have chemicals flowing through you. This is demonstrated. You've experienced it. It takes a while for those things to calm down. We're talking about uh, those adrenaline. We're talking about uh, cortisol. It takes a while for your heart rate to calm down. It takes a while for your blood pressure to go back down. All those things that your body is prepared for a fight or flight, right? Takes a while for those things to calm down. And you need that time. When you're boiling with anger or when you just shut down and you're like, I don't, you know, you just can't even talk. You don't even know what to say. Take a break. Distract yourself 20 minutes or something. But not too long that you would then just feel like, okay, I'm not even going to deal with it, right? Take a long enough break that then you can begin to process and think things through of what, what were you wanting before things went off the rail? What is it about what happened that triggered you, that, that, that just ramped you up? What was going on there? What were you really wanting? Um, And, you know, taking a break is good. And if you can build, like, a little signal into your relationship where either one of you, especially in a marriage, can just do a little sign, like, okay, I need a break. And maybe use, like, you know, timeout, like they do in sports. Right? Timeout. Or maybe you come up with something else, like, you know, I don't know. You know, anything that you can come across where you both ahead of time know, okay, this is, I'm going to, we're going to take a break. We know this. The, our, the issue will still be there, but it can wait 20 minutes. Because we get out of control sometimes, and if we love each other, we're going to accommodate that and say, you know what, let's, let's just take, take a little break. If you can find something funny and humorous in your lives, it, it's super helpful. Don't use it as a weapon, but to take that break. Uh, and if you're in a relationship that is constantly filled with stress, that you're in a place in your marriage or in this relationship where you are always bickering, you're always at each other, or you're just shut down already, it could take longer than 20 minutes, right? If you are in a state where you just consume media that elevates your blood pressure, where you're just listening to politics or whatever, and it has you constantly in a level of agitation, it's going to take you longer than 20 minutes to calm down, and you're probably going to ramp up sooner in any argument you have with anyone on the planet. And in fact, do you remember when you were a kid, maybe older folks, maybe, you know, 
maybe your grandparents or your parents said, count to 10. You know, if you're angry, just count to 10. Right? So now it's 20 minutes. That's count to 1,200. I don't think it was wrong when we were kids, especially when maybe my parents were kids. You could count to 10 because life wasn't as insane and stressful as it is today. In our polarized world, in our media and everything division and everything being pumped at you, our kids in a state of constant anxiety, I, why are we surprised? that it doesn't take long for us to be emotionally overwhelmed? Why are we surprised that road rage is prevalent? Why are we surprised by any of those things? We don't have that opportunity to calm down. You know, and if you're in that place, I challenge you, take, take some sort of media fast, some sort of technology fast. Just stop it for a while and see if your life doesn't get a little calmer eventually. And give yourself some grace in that. Wow, we're on the first point. Told you there's a lot in this passage. Count to 1,200. Slowly. Right? You know, I... The issue being, figure out what it is you want. Get to the place where you can do that thinking, where the blood will stop flowing to all your members, getting you ready for action, and the blood will begin again flowing to your thinking and rational part of your brain. Right? That's what counting to 1,200 would give for you. That's, that's, sometimes you need some help with that. You know, I, you find yourself getting irritated. Take a, take a break a little sooner. If you feel your, your pulse starting to ramp up, you feel your face starting to flush, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're starting to sweat, or whatever it is you find, pay attention to your body, right? I've noticed, um, especially reading emails and stuff, sometimes I get a little irritated, and I tend to want to go, Ugh! that's my, I'm like, okay, I'm going, Ugh! I don't know how to spell that, but uh, I'm like, what's going on? And sometimes I'll look at whatever I just read, and I'll be like, I don't know what the problem is, and I'll be like, especially when we were working from home, and there was, there was, this, was this was years ago, different, different situation, I remember distinctly one time, I'm reading an email, and I happen to be at home, because it was my day off, and uh, I'm like, oh, and I look at the email, and I'm like, why is this bothering me? And I'm like, hey, honey, can, what is it about this email that's bothering me? And she, my wife comes over, and she's like, she knows me. She's lived with me for more than, what, 22 years or something now, right? Almost 23. Um, and she says, yeah, you know what it probably is. I'm like, no, I don't. That's, what is it? Irritated. She said, well, just even the subject line of that email is probably bothering you. I'm like, what? I look at the subject line. I'm like, yeah, that does. Why does that bother me? She said, well, it, it's telling you what to do. And you don't like to be told what to do. I asked for this input, didn't I? Like, what, what, what do you mean? Well, it says, don't open this on your day off. Wait until tomorrow when you're back to work. That was the subject line. And I'm like, yeah! What do they think? I don't know that? She's like, exactly. Oh. What's going on with that? Well, I like, you know, I want, I want people to view me as competent. 
I want people to think, Mike knows how to handle his time off. And it's something that I'm, I work hard at, guarding space for family and everything, right? And it's challenging to keep those boundaries and not be a jerk and all those kind of things, right? And here's someone telling me, effectively, I'm reading it as, you need help. You're not doing this. I need to tell you. And it's kind of a silly thing. But brothers and sisters, that right there is the desire war in a nutshell. It's something as simple as a subject line on an email doing stuff in my heart. And if I don't identify that, if I don't recognize it, if, I don't, if I'm not aware enough and don't ask for help, hey, help me understand what's going on here, that's going to color my ongoing relationship with this person. This was, this was more than a decade ago. This was another church, another scenario, another context. No one here. But if I didn't understand that better, that would color my response to that person going forward. It would be like another drop in the bucket of our, my emotional overwhelm. And so then maybe that happens again and again, I start to fill up, and so then something totally insignificant happens and I just lose it on the person. Instead of either dealing with it on my own or having a conversation about it. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here in the desire war. It's why it's so critical to identify what you want. And as a follower of Jesus, you know, we're called. That's, that's what one of the core aspects of discipleship is to, to submit our priorities. In fact, to put it this way, to prioritize our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. To love God and love our neighbor. And to do otherwise is to be like the world. It's to cheat on God. To commit adultery. And that's, that's where James goes next. And since we're just finishing up the first point in a full amount of sermon time, I'm going to figure out how to refigure our schedule. Because I don't want to rush through this because there is some really helpful, profound truths to be had in the rest of this passage. If you just take this aspect of the desire war, and this week, this week, pay attention. When you are turning your allies into your enemies, Maybe you need to take a break in that, right? What are the things going on in your life that you're kind of keeping compartmentalized from God? You're not praying about. You're not lifting before Him. You know, take those scenarios, those situations, and reflect on them. Not in the heat of the moment, but step back. Maybe you get up a little earlier. You just spend some time. Go, go to this passage and meditate on these first few verses of James chapter 4 and, and take it to the Lord. Lord, what is going on here? What is the desire at war within me? And in essence, I can't, I can't wrap us up today without just at least pointing you to Jesus. In essence, what you're doing there is verse 10. 
humbling yourselves in the presence of the Lord that He might exalt you. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord that He might exalt you. Right? If, that's, if, if, if you try that this week, right? take note of how it's hard, how it's easy. Take note of how that all works out. And we'll unpack at least the second point, depending on how much I can rearrange the schedule and, and get this nailed down a little more. That, that you might take that before the Lord, humble yourself, and if you can identify the desire that's turning your allies into enemies, that's, that's moving you away from the Lord, if you can identify that desire, to then take that humbly before the Lord, and what we'll deal with next week, Lord willing, is being able to say with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when He asked the Father, to, is there not possible to take this cup from Me? To be able to say, this is what I want, Lord, but nevertheless, Thy will be the very reason Jesus was having that conversation with the Father while He's in the garden is that He's about to go to the cross. That He is about to suffer because we don't make God's will our priority. Because we lose in the desire of war. And what Jesus did in winning that moment, fully human, fully divine, He alone could win in that moment. But what He did for us in going to that cross is set us free. He broke the power of that desire at war within us. And He gives that grace to those who will humble themselves and say, that is what I need. To say as you identify the desire, Lord, I don't even want to talk to you about this. Lord, I don't want to give it up. Lord, change my heart. Lord, give me more of Jesus. Give me more of Your Spirit. And if you can identify it, talk to someone you trust about it and bring them into that with you that you both might deal with it. And with the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. It is so rich and good and helpful and practical. Lord, I pray that each of us would pay attention this week to identify what we want. What are those desires at war within us that especially, Lord, are tipping us over the line where we would turn our friends, our spouses, our children, our parents, our co-workers, our fellow church members, what are those things, Lord, that would tip us over that line and help us this week, Lord, to identify them and to lay them humbly before you? And we trust, Lord, you'll do that in us this week and work through us and give us great grace. Through Jesus, and in his name we pray.